The scripture for today's sermon comes from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abide, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Kristen. Morning, everybody. Morning. All right. That was good. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together this morning. If you're new to the church, we, we, we generally are in a book of the Bible and in it for a while. So, so we just finished a, a series recently in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this week, the last couple of weeks, have been standalone sermons, but... Uh, just a few weeks away from kicking off our next series on the book of Genesis. And so really excited about that. But, but this morning, we're going to see what God has to say to us in, in the book of John. And so I want to invite you to, to pray with me. Um, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and then we'll get started. Well, God, thank you for, just for the gift of your word. God, would you, would you convict us of sin today? Would you encourage us today? Um, would you show us our, our deep need for you? And, uh, and we just ask God that you would, you would change us more into the image of your son today. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. So it's September, which means I can start talking about Christmas. Oh, oh I heard that. So my family, we are real Christmas tree people in our house. I did not grow up like that. I grew up with fake Christmas trees um, but I married a woman whose grandparents owned and operated a Christmas tree farm outside of Kansas City. So yeah, it's like, it's like the movies. It's just like it. And so pretty quickly, I went from being a, a fake tree person to a real tree person. But very quickly as well, I developed a love-hate relationship with the Christmas trees themselves because... Judging by the fact that I brought this up in the first place, like I would like for there to be Christmas decorations up in my house from like November 1st until maybe February 1st. And so if you've ever tried to keep a real tree alive that, that long, you know that's not, it's not happening. And so I tried all the things, like, you know, read all the, the stuff online, tried all the tricks, and never can I keep these trees 
uh, alive as long as I, as I want to. And to be honest, I know what's going on, right? Like, I, I, I understand the reality that once they cut that tree off from its root system and stacked it at lows, um, that it was not going to last very long. Even if I put it in some water and, and fed it chemicals and whatever you want to do, you know, um, it may look good still for a little bit. It may smell good. Um, it, it may even like feel real, uh, you know, for the, for, the, for the time you have it up. But you realize it's not once, the, once your dog walks past and, and her tail knocks off half the, the needles with one fell swoop. Um, because for a time, you can water it, you can do all these things to it, but it's dying. It does, it's been cut off from its, from its true life source. And, and this really packed passage, which actually, to be honest with you, is more packed with, with goodness than I thought was even in there in the first place. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they turn to us this morning, reminding us in a really clear and powerful way that we're all made to be attached to our root system. We're all made to be attached to the vine that's Jesus and that there's consequences when we're not, but there's also a joy that comes with when we are. And so I want to jump in this morning and start looking just to, together for a few minutes at this first verse by itself. So John chapter 15, verse 1, let me read it for you again. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. You know, Jesus starts off by stating something that in the original context would have been pretty profound and powerful, so much so that the disciples, when these words came out of his mouth, they probably would have like audibly gasped or been taken back by, by his choice of words, his choice of analogy. To us, this is just a, an agrarian metaphor. It's a vine and some branches. We've, we've planted flowers. We've seen trees grow. We, we understand. But to the people in the room, um, it would have been really profound because throughout the Old Testament, multiple times in the Old Testament, the people of Israel themselves are referred to as a vine or a grapevine. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Again, Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So this is actually kind of a big deal to them. At one time, a vine was actually minted on the currency that they used, and they would have looked at a grapevine itself in the same way that we maybe look at the stars and stripes on the American flag. The temple gates themselves were adorned with this beautifully ornate Grapevine. I want to read from you a description of this from a biblical dictionary from 1832. It says, In the temple at Jerusalem, above and round the gate, 70 cubits high, which led from the porch to the holy place, a richly carved vine was extended as a border and a decoration. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The stalks and the bunches were of the length of human form, and the bunches hanging from upon them were of costly jewels. Herod first placed it there, rich and patriotic Jews from time to time added to its embellishment. One contributed a new grape, another a leaf, and a third even a bunch of the same precious materials. This vine must have had an uncommon importance and a sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. See, the grapevine was an incredibly important symbol of national life for Israel. So Jesus, from the jump, is saying, what you were once found your deepest identity in, in your nationality, you now find it in me. Where you developed your sense of purpose and meaning uh, for life in general from your national identity as Jewish people, you now find it in me. 
Because Israelites lived and moved and thought every minute of every day as Israelites, God's chosen people. And at the outset, Jesus simply says, you may have been a vine, but I'm the vine. It no longer matters what tribe you come from or what your last name is. What matters is whether or not you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. And so what's happening here in this analogy that Jesus is choosing to use is he's simply stating on purpose that there's such thing as a false source of life and a true source of life. And not even a true source of life, but one single true source of life. And so just as, as we jump in today, this kind of begs the question for everybody in the room to be asked and kind of kept in front of us for the next couple minutes is just really simply, where are you currently drawing your source of life and meaning from? In the same way that many of the, the people of Israel rejected Jesus for their traditions and their other loves, we, we have the tendency to attach ourselves to other vines as well, right? Other sources of life and meaning, instead of seeing our need to be attached to the true vine, Jesus. And the reality is that sometimes we do this on, on purpose, but then sometimes we get lulled to sleep and we stray from the path. My assumption is that most of us didn't get out of bed this morning, put on our clothes, and decide that we were going to walk away from Jesus. Um, the, the reality is that, that we, we slowly, um, and, and over a long period of time, a long time, subtly over time, we allow new voices to speak to us that seem attractive at the time and draw us just a little bit away. And so it's incredibly easy over a period of time to experience drift. So it's good for us to stop for a moment and simply just ask ourselves what vine we have ourselves attached to because a little bit of drift and a little bit of drift and a little bit of drift and then you look up six months later and you're on a completely different planet altogether. And so simply as we can ask it this morning in light of Jesus' initial words here, what vine do I find myself attached to? Where am I drawing my sense of meaning and purpose and life from? And if you find yourself wondering today uh, what the actual answer to that question is, um, uh, that you're in luck because this passage actually points really specifically to, to three distinct things that Jesus um, points out that happen if you're, in fact, abiding in him, if you're, in fact, drawing your, your life from him. You, you bear fruit, you experience pruning, and you experience joy. You bear fruit, you experience pruning, and you experience joy. Two things that seem really fun and another thing that doesn't seem very fun. But I want to spend a little bit of time looking at every single one of these things, all three of these things this morning. So let's, let's read together again. This is chapter 15, verses 2 through 5. 2 through 5. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the central focus of this entire passage from start to finish is this idea of bearing fruit. And then in order to do so and experience true life as God intends it um, to be lived, you have to be attached to the vine. You have to be attached to the vine. I'm going to say the vine over and over again because I'm referring to one vine, the only true vine in Jesus. There's no other way around it. Jesus is making it very clear. There's no other source of life for us to draw on, nothing that will truly give us purpose, nothing that will truly bring light to the world around us other than Jesus. 
Not your career, not your family, not your intelligence, not the school you went to, not your political party, and not your stuff. All those things, according to this passage, lead to a dead branch. A branch that he points to further ahead in verse 6 is saying it's clearly that it's gathered up and it's thrown away to be burned. See, he's trying to, in really stark contrast, show us that there's a way to life and there's a way to not experience life. And he wants us to experience life. But if you are attached to the test of the vine, the beauty of this passage is going to point out that you are actually going to bear fruit. You're going to bear fruit. And the way that you bear fruit is by abiding in Jesus, in particular abiding in his word and his spirit. This, this idea of abiding that Jesus is giving here in this, this picture, literally um, being attached to him in the sense that his life is flowing outwards out of him into you so that you can bear fruit and grow and be a light to the world. No different from the original context that he spoke this to the disciples. Jesus was giving the disciples a really clear picture of the fact that they have to both abide in his spirit and abide in his word. They have to rely on his spirit and rely on his word for their very life. Because the spirit of God takes the very words of God and causes them to nourish our soul better than any meal that we could have. And in turn, it causes us to live and act like Jesus, to look like Jesus. Bearing in our very lives the, what the Bible calls the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23 says the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the life of bearing fruit is a life of full reliance on the triune God of the universe. And in return, we actually start to look and act like Jesus. And not like the world around us. My little girl spends a lot of time with my wife and I, and so obviously, and so at, at four and a half, she's starting to, to to act like us and say things that that I say, and even use the same inflection in her voice that, that mom and dad use, and um, and and hopefully that keeps on happening as we want to raise her <laughs> to walk with Jesus. And um, but when she goes away, some of you parents understand this really well. Every now and then, she goes and she spends a week with her cousins in Kansas City. And she loves them. She, she hangs on every word they say. They're older than her. She wants to be like them. She follows them around. She mimics their every move. And then she comes home, and she's a completely different person when she comes home. Some of those things are cute, and they're good. And, and then some of those things are like, I'm immediately trying to course correct back in the direction that we were going in the first place. And in the same way, as we, we abide in Jesus and hang on his very word, and do as he did, we begin to look like different people. We actually begin to look like Jesus. But this also happens for us in the opposite direction, though, as well. The numerous things that we find some happiness or belonging in begin to define us instead. And so it's good practice from time to time to, to look at the types of fruit that we're bearing. What do I spend my money on? What do I choose to spend my time on? What makes me happy? What makes me angry? What makes me sad? If you're more marked by a political party than you are marked by Jesus, then you need to stop and take a moment and look at what vine you're attached to. If you don't have time at all in your life to live in Christian community because of your kid's crazy activity schedule, you might need to take a moment and look at what vine you're attached to. Because if you're abiding in Jesus and hanging on his very word and doing as he does, you're going to look like him. You're going to act like him. You're going to value the things that he values. 
You're going to be angered by the things that angered him. You're going to love the things that he loves. And you're literally going to look like Jesus. It won't be perfect fruit, but it'll be fruit, right? It won't be perfect, but it'll be fruit. If we're abiding in Jesus, we're going to bear fruit. But it doesn't just stop there. In order for us to experience growth while being attached to the vine, we also have to experience the pruning that happens when being attached to the vine. There's a, there's a promise here in verse 2 that if you do bear fruit, you will also experience at times the painful process of pruning that happens. And not in some purely punitive way so that we won't mess up anymore, but so that we'll experience even greater growth, or as theologians call it, sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. I was blown away by, and this was a total accident, by the way, I was blown away the first time that I went outside and saw uh, a flower that, that my, my little girl had picked out at, at Lowe's, and we'd planted, and it looked great, and then the flower started to die. And so I took the shears, and I snipped them all, all the flowers off, because I didn't want to look at the dead flowers anymore. Um, I thought it was a goner, and then a couple weeks I come outside, not paying much attention to see that there's bigger, like more vibrant, beautiful flowers growing on this plant because I had cut away the dead growth so that the sustenance that was coming from the ground could actually feed something better. Most of us, I would hope, when we're, when we're <laughs> punishing our children, um, are not doing so uh, in, in just because we're angry people um, who want to take out our anger on them, but we're doing so in order to try to form them into the image of the, the little human beings we're trying to make them into, right? So they don't run headlong into to danger and so that they do look more like Jesus, Pruning is just a central part of the life of a Christian, and Jesus is making it clear here that to abide in him, we always means that to some extent we start to, to look like him through the pruning that we experience. And in fact, it's the very trials that we face that cause us to rely on Jesus and trust him for our provision. It's the very suffering that we experience at times that cause us to realize that we need God in the first place. Author Malcolm Muggridge, he's got a great name. He said, suppose you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. My first role at Frontline um, uh, was the worship director here in Edmonds. Some of you remember that. Um, but prior to us planning the church, I had, been, I had led worship for quite a while, and I, was, and I was writing some music, and I had this grand idea that I would, I would uh, record an album. And my good friend Charlie Hall, who was also my boss at the time, uh, was, uh, he had recorded a few albums, and, and I had the idea that because I was so great, I was going to piggyback off the back of what he had done and record a new one under the same name. And... And so I set up a meeting with him, we sit down together, and that meeting did not go anything like I had hoped it would or planned it would. Where I, where I sat down to, um, unbeknownst to me, because I have blind spots through my pride and arrogance to continue to build a platform so everyone could look at me and see how great I was, um, my good friend wounded me by showing me how arrogant and prideful I was to the extent that where I was leading worship on a regular basis, he benched me for eight months it wouldn't let me take a stage, wouldn't let me lead it anyway. And it was painful. Because my entire life up to that point really had been around building this like image of me that I wanted people to see. And he just crushed it. 
but it was good for me. If you know me at all, I've probably shared multiple times in different circumstances that like that was something that completely changed my life, that made me look at myself different, God different, the church different. I don't think I would be an elder at this church. I don't think that I would be married to my wife. There's a lot of good gifts that God's given me that I, I think because of the pruning that I experienced in that time in my life brought me to, to become a more humble man than I was before. Still working on it, but a more humble man than I was before. The faithful wound of my friend is what did it for me. So I've learned in some way to try to press into those hard conversations uh, because even though they're difficult, I know what the, the results and the fruit that they're going to bear if I'll give them the time. And what's really incredible is it's easy to look past this, but, but Jesus makes sure to point out to us as well that the one who's doing the actual pruning is the Father, is God himself. Our Father who knows our most intimate needs is also the one who draws near to us to prune the places of our life he knows will be painful, yet in the end will cause us to experience joy. So you may avoid hard things at all costs. And one invitation to you this morning is to stop and ask yourself why exactly that seems to be true about yourself. You may also be currently experiencing suffering and trials or just come out the other end of it. And if you're anything like me, I can immediately go to a dark place of self-pity and self-loathing and start shouting, why me? Like, why is this happening to me? And completely miss the fact that God wants to do something in the midst of my pain and my suffering. Twice in Psalm 119, which is all about abiding in the words of God, David alludes to the process of pruning that happens. He says in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And in verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might keep your statutes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This is good news, and it's why James, in James chapter 1, said, Count it all joy, my brothers. Not count it all sadness, not run from this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's because of the difficulties that we face while being attached to the vine, that we experience growth. And lastly, a life lived attached to the vine is a life of spiritual vitality and joy. Spiritual vitality and joy. Let's look together at the last chunk of this passage, verse 7 through 11. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As fathers loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Some translations say complete. Jesus says something really incredible here. He's not saying that as long as you are attached to the vine, by the way, that if you ask for a million dollars, you're going to get a million dollars. I've prayed that before, and I don't have a million dollars. 
But what he's saying is that a life of abiding in Jesus and abiding in his word means that what God wants will naturally become what you want. Your wants and desires will align with his as you abide in him to the point that what you do pray for will be what he wants you to pray for. And what you do put your hand to to do in this life, it'll be what he wants you to put your hands to to do in this life. If you're worried about wasting your life, then abide in Jesus. He's giving you the answer. It's not a name it, claim it mentality that he's espousing here. He's saying it's a God wants it, so I want it mentality. And it only comes through abiding in Jesus. My wife and I have only been married for six and a half years. But we're already, to a very imperfect way, in a really imperfect way, able to start kind of guessing like what the other person is going to want in a scenario. I say imperfect because I fail at this all the time. Um, but I can kind of anticipate how she's going to respond to something. And I, I can anticipate to what's going to make her angry or what's going to make her incredibly happy. And the reality is that, that what's incredible is that Jesus is saying that we can know him like that. If we abide in him and he abides in us, we can actually have a relationship with him intimately like that, that I long to have with my wife, to where I know what she thinks, I know what she wants, I can anticipate and I can move, we can move together in the same direction. The God of the universe has a desire for us to know him so intimately that we would want what he wants, that we would want what he wants. So much so that he can say something that seems incredible. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Then he goes on to also say that these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's giving us the answer if we're wondering what it looks like to experience the good life. He's saying I made you for one specific purpose to abide in me. Not to find your hope in anything else. Every single other thing is going to lead to a dead branch. But he says, if you abide in me, I will give you joy. True, pure joy. So the time abiding in God's word is worth it. The pruning that we endure while we're abiding in God's word is worth it. It's what G.K. Chesterton called the gigantic secret of the Christian because while the rest of the world is experiencing suffering and despair, we can also actually look to the end result and the things we go through. In this fallen world, we can actually experience joy because of Jesus, even when things aren't perfect. And when they're not going well at all. It's what Peter calls joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because in the end, we get Jesus in the end. The only thing that satisfies, we get Jesus in the end. We get an intimate, life-giving relationship with the God of the universe who created all things, sustains all things, he knows all things, and he loves his children. And so the invitation for us today is to abide in Jesus. Find our all in Jesus. I'll close with this. The great hymn writer, John Newton wrote, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils 
of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes, schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thine all in me. Let's pray together. God, you know the, the deepest parts of our, our hearts. You know the, the things that we're prone to, to move towards, the things that we're prone to find our very life and meaning in. God, I just want to ask for the believers in the room today. God, would you just restore the joy of our own salvation to us today? Remind us of our first love. If we're drifting, God, would you mercifully prune the areas of our life that need to be pruned? Would you draw us to you? Remind us what we have in you? God, would you help us all to see the fact that you are everything we need? You have the words of life, so where else would we go? So God, bring repentance in our lives, bring, bring change. Make us more into the image of Jesus, we ask God. We, we ask that you would make us more into the image of Jesus and remind us that the lies of the world are the lies of the world. And that what you offer actually is life, true life. In Jesus' name, amen.